I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I get to teach the Bible this morning. And before we get rolling, I have a couple uh, fun things to share. One is last week, if you were here, we did this special one-time fund that was going to help uh, uh, refugees who are fleeing Ukraine. We have a, one of our members who's going to Poland to work on the border, and we have one of our long-time workers in Turkey who's living in Moldova who's working with refugees there, and we also have a bigger organization that Redemption Church as a whole is serving. And last week in just the one-time offering, you all gave about $29,000, which is incredible. I just love that. Yeah. It's, uh, I, I remember when I first came to this church, one of the things I initially was drawn to and excited about was just how generous the church was. I felt like it's contagious. It's fun to be generous to other people being generous. It's harder to be generous when you feel like you're the only one, you know, and so none of you are the only one. That's great. So, so thanks for giving. The other thing is uh, we have Easter coming up. You may not have noticed, but Easter's coming up pretty soon. You got these invite cards in your programs when you walked in. Uh, I find that these are pretty helpful um, for a variety of reasons. One, they can be a way of inviting someone. You go, here you go. Love to see you there. Um, also, don't do that if that's your way of avoiding a conversation, right? Like, uh, don't leave this instead of a tip. You know, if you do, anybody does that, immediately excommunicated. So, uh, <laughs> But I do find that if I keep these in my car somewhere, it helps me be mindful and looking for opportunities to pray people and invite people and, and uh, bring them along. A lot of folks are looking for answers to their questions. They may not be asking the question, did Jesus rise from the dead or not? But they're asking the question, does my life have value? Uh, do I have value? Do I matter? Does any of this matter? Um, how do I find stability in a world of instability? How do I... Uh, have love myself even though I know that I'm not who I want myself to be? You know, those types of questions. People are asking those questions. And the gospel of Jesus answers those questions. And so people don't have to be going, is there a God, for them to maybe be possibly interested in seeing what Easter has coming on. And so I just encourage you to pray and invite folks to come and kind of be prepared to feel a little bit exposed when that happens because someone might believe that you believe that people rise from the dead and that would kind of that makes some people uncomfortable. <laughs> so uh, be prepared for that. Pray for it. Get it going. Oh, we also have Good Friday services, which are inside. Those are uh, at, at in the evening, 4.30 and 6. And the Easter's on the lawn. We rented about 2,000 chairs. We'll do 7.30 and 9 in the morning. So kind of do a save the date. Start to make plans with your family. Who's hosting, doing what. Get your plans nailed down. And then we'd love to see it. If you want to RSVP, that'll help. So that way we have kind of balanced attendance. And if we need to move some stuff around, we'll make that happen. So RSVP when you're ready, but have the family discussions and we'll get going that direction. But the, like, that whole like, reality of this gap that we experience between what we're hoping to get out of life and what we're getting out of life, that, it, that gap exists in a thousand forms, right? We, you know, Taylor and I prayed for a long time to have a second kid, and we got one, and she is what the doctors would call fussy sometimes, technical term, you know, she, she's, uh, you know, you would like her to be a little happier, you know, and can't really do much, you know, the nice thing about fussy is you do grow out of it, uh, sometimes it comes back around puberty, you know, but you, you know, <laughs> but you do generally grow out of it, uh, but we're, you know, she's, you're watching the hospital, in the hospital they make you watch these videos, I don't know if any of you had a baby recently, but they make you watch these videos, they're like pretty like rough, and it's like, it's like 20 minutes of don't shake your baby propaganda, right? And it's like, they're, they're laying it on you. Do not shake your baby. And you're holding your new baby, and you're like, who would ever do that, right? And then it's 3 a.m., and you've been screamed at for 96 minutes. And you're like, remember the videos, remember the videos, remember the videos. 
So anyway, the videos have worked so far, so don't call DCS on us or anything like that. The videos are working, just to be clear. But we did order these uh, colic tabs. I don't know if, you know, it's one of those, uh, the key phrase in placebo effect is effect sometimes. And I'm like, I don't know if it works or not, but if it makes me feel like it works, then I'm going to order them. So I ordered these two bottles of different colic tabs that are supposed to, like, help your baby, whatever. And we got in the mail... Uh, the two things that we ordered, and I, so I told my wife, I was like, hey, the colic tabs are at the door. She went and got the two packages, and one of them was colic tabs, and the other one was they had sent noise-canceling headphones. <laughs> and I was thinking, did, was there the one time Amazon's had a computer glitch? Did that happen? Or is there like some employee at Amazon who just thinks he's hilarious, you know, and it's like, <laughs> I know what you really need. I know what you think you need. I know what you really need. Enjoy these headphones. So I have these uh, Galaxy Note rose gold noise-canceling headphones. And uh, I don't know, they're way more expensive than the colic tabs. But anyway, but that, I've, I connected with that because that whole like, I know what you think you need, but here's what you actually need phenomenon. That's, that's a lot of what's going on in the text this morning is I know what you think you need, but here's what you actually need. Uh, we are deeply insecure and purposeless people as humans, as a species, on the whole. This kind of feeling of being exposed or found out or discovered or uh, seen for who we really are and it's different than who we want to be. That creates insecurity. That's called the, that, that dynamic tends to be uh, described as shame. All right, there's who I want to be, there's who I want people to think I am, and there's who I am. And if they see that, I'll feel exposed and that would be awful. And so I hide I, in shame. Right? We're also purposeless. What's the meaning? How do I want to do this? It's like the midlife crises are happening earlier and earlier. Right? And it's less and less by a Harley Davidson. And it's more just switch careers every two, three years. So I find something that's going to be finally meaningful. And so we're looking for security and looking for purpose in all these different places. And the beauty of the resurrection of Jesus is it addresses both those things. And I think that if we look at this text and we see the history of how God has worked through the resurrection of Jesus, we'll actually discover how God produces security in us and how he gives us meaning and purpose at the same time. So I want to pray and then we're going to see how God meets us in this text, all right? Jesus, thank you for the way that you walked out of the grave. Thank you for the way it's written down and recorded here. Pray that you help us see not just the facts of history, but also how those facts break into the present and land in our daily lives. God, have mercy on us and help us see what you want us to see here in the scriptures. Amen. Amen. So what we see here is on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. That's John chapter 20. We call this the gospel accomplished. If you grew up in a church kind of like mine, you grew up hearing the gospel is Jesus died for your sins, meaning like there's something wrong with you that deserves punishment. Jesus dies for your sins. That's the gospel. And I want to say that is part of the gospel. That's not the whole gospel. I kind of grew up thinking like the resurrection was important because it proved Jesus was God, period, the end. But what we actually see is that the resurrection is important because it's actually conquering of sin and death. It's actually the power and the means by which the victory that was purchased on the cross comes across and, and lands and lives. It's kind of like I went with my mom to buy a new car the other week and uh, we were sitting there and we signed the papers and we hand them the check and it's purchased. They walk with the stuff in the back but then there was no gas in the car and we didn't have the keys yet. 
That's kind of like Good Friday and Easter. Good Friday is like it's purchased, but there's no power yet. And we get the power and the ability to actually do something with it once there's gas in the tank and we have the keys. And the resurrection is actually the powerful part. It's the part where he conquers sin and death. Not just where we're purchased, but we're empowered and, uh, and finalized and we're actually accomplishing what God has called us to do. And so I hope that all of us in this room recognize that Jesus needed to die for us, but he also needed to live for us if we're going to actually walk in the way that he's called us to walk. That a death-only gospel leads to a bunch of people who aren't afraid of hell but aren't engaged in God's mission. People who know that God died for them but don't know what to do next. You might have some security but you have no purpose. And here we see Mary looking for more. Jesus is dead and everyone's pouting and they're sad. She runs to tomb. She sees that the tomb is taken away. And it's, this whole section is hopefully encouraging to us for variety of directions. But it says, They've taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going towards the tomb. This is one of the things that I think also helps me believe the scriptures, is that there are some of these like petty details that are irrelevant that are included somehow. Here's what it says, verse 4. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. John's writing it like, so this is John writing, and he's going like, the two of us were running, and one of us got there first, and it wasn't Peter. You know, like that's, <laughs> like, uh, this is like, when you talk to people who like are specialized in identifying eyewitness testimony, this is one of the elements of eyewitness testimony, is details are included that are sort of relevant, but they're still remembered. That's kind of the way that it gets pieced together. So here you have John being a little bit petty, going, yeah, Peter's the rock on whom Jesus is building the church, but I run faster. So it, write it down, I saw it first, there was nobody there. Both had run together, but the other disciple had run Peter, all the way down to verse 8. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, just to remind you, I got there first, also went in and he saw and he believed. Uh, so they see this empty tomb, Mary sees the empty tomb, they go and get Peter, John, see the empty tomb, and they're all like, wow, empty tomb, bummer. See, one of the problems with growing up in Christendom with like a Christian understanding is we see empty tomb and we go, yay, empty tomb, Jesus is risen. But they see empty tomb and they think, oh, those grave robbers again. Because like, they're in like this rich person's burial ground and people would be buried with variables, with valuables, not variables, valuables on a regular basis. And it wasn't uncommon for gray robbers to come through, uh, you know, and desecrate the tomb and steal the gold and go off and sell it in the next town. And so that's what the thinking happened. Grave robbers came in, stole the body, maybe they'll hold it ransom, maybe whatever. That's like their first flinch is not Christ is risen, but Christ is stolen. Bummer. This is what it says in verse 9. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. I hope we see this, that these people were walking with Jesus for years and years and years, and he told them time and time and time again, I will rise from the dead. And yet, he rises from the dead, and they still do not connect the dots. I've talked to a lot of you in this room. I haven't talked to a lot of you in this room, but there's like one of the feelings of shame that I think exists is for people who especially didn't grow up in church, this feeling of, I don't understand enough. I can't get baptized yet because I don't know enough. I can't serve yet because I don't know enough. I haven't learned enough. I haven't done enough. And there's this feeling of ongoing shame of I don't understand all the stuff that it seems like other people understand. And I just want to say you will never understand all the things that we are able to understand. It is a lifetime process of understanding and knowing God in the scriptures. Even when we die in an eternity with God, God is still infinite. We're still finite. You spend the rest of your life learning. So that feeling of not understanding something, you have to just get used to it. It doesn't go away. Make peace with not understanding everything 
and get in the habit of just going, I'm going to be a learner. And then I learn the rest of my life, and then I die, and then I keep learning. That's the way following Jesus works. So I hope you don't feel any sense of shame for not understanding because you didn't have Jesus as personal tutor for three years and see an empty tomb and just think he got stolen. All right. Don't feel bad about not understanding stuff. Then the disciples went back to their homes. They just go, oh, grave robbers got him. Well, that stinks. And the, the men leave. But Mary, verse 11. We're going to talk this gospel announced. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. So all the guys leave. They go, well, he's gone. Bummer. See you later. But she stayed. And she wept as she stooped, looking into the tomb. See, tears and weeping reveal to us what we love and value more, than, more honestly than anything else. Okay, so where do you weep? Where are your tears? Those reveal to us our values and our loves in a really powerful way. Mary is not done. Right, the disciples should have, at a minimum, done the Jewish rite of sitting Shiva, where you sit seven days and grieve and lament. The disciples don't even do that. They just kind of go like, well, that didn't work out, and they go home. Mary sits and is not done. She's lingering. She's grieving. She needs to spend time in the place where Jesus was buried. She saw two angels where they're laid it's all this stuff. Verse 13, the angel said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, We've taken, they have taken away my Lord. I don't know where they've laid him. So she's still agonizing over this. She can't just move on. Her grief is remaining. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around, saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? This is significant. These are the first words of the risen Jesus. The first act of the risen Lord. The first ministry that Christ risen is engaged with is he sees someone weeping and says, tell me about that. See, sometimes we think about participating in mission, being like Jesus, being the hands and feet of Jesus, being a, a loving our neighbors. How do we start? Where do we go? And we get all complicated about it. And here's, here's ministry 101. The first act of the risen Lord is to see someone weeping and say, tell me more about that, what's going on. I do think that if most of us were attentive to the tears of our friends, family, and neighbors, that would be all the ministry you'd ever have time for. Why are you weeping? Next thing Jesus asks, he looks at her, what are you seeking? These are basically two ways of asking the same question. What do you care about? What do you value? And the question, what are you seeking, is significant because I talked about how what are you weeping was the first words of the risen Jesus. The first words in the Gospel of John of Jesus before he dies it comes in John chapter 1, verse 37 and 38. Two disciples heard some guys say, lame of God, and so they fall after Jesus. Jesus sees these people following him. He turns around and says to them, what are you seeking? So the whole Gospel of John is set up as the story that's meant to answer this question, what do you want, what do you desire, what are you seeking, what are you looking for? And here we finally have the answer to this question that Mary is the only one answers right. What are you looking for, what are you seeking, what do you want? Mary's tears and her presence are telling us that Mary wants what other people should want and Mary is seeking what other people should seek. The other men go back home, Mary stays seeking Jesus. Whom are you seeking? Supposing him the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, 
I'll take him away. Meaning if other people have given up on this guy's body, I haven't. Do you know where he is? She's still looking for Jesus. This ache of separation that produces tears, I hope that exists in all of us. There's distance between me and the Lord. There's distance between me and God. There's like a lack of emotional connection. There's something wrong here and it produces tears and it produces weeping and we seek after him. See, Mary is showing that she was the one who gets it. Her values are rightly in order. Her loves are rightly ordered. She's caring about the right things. Do you ache for Christ when you don't have him? Do you weep when you create distance between you and him? Most of the time I do not. A lot of times in these stories we're supposed to look at Jesus and say, like, wow, look at him. But in this type of passage, I think we're supposed to look at Mary a little bit. Mary Magdalene. Say, look at her. Look at how she loves Jesus. Look at how she weeps for the right stuff. Look at how she lingers in grief. Look at how Christ comforts her. This is not be like Mary Church, but sometimes people get it right, and Mary here is getting it right. What are you seeking? Supposing in the gardener, she says that. Jesus, verse 16, says, we're Mary. He recognizes her. She recognizes his voice, turns and says, Rabboni, teacher. Jesus says, hold on, don't cling to me. I got more stuff to do. Go and tell your brothers, my brothers, and say to them, he's, he's about to go. This makes me think, uh, I was watching... Uh, I was playing with Jay, my two-and-a-half-year-old, yesterday in the backyard, and it's springtime, you know, which means, you know, the, there's a lot of animals wrestling in our backyard. You know, the doves are wrestling. And then the, uh, the lizards are doing push-ups before they wrestle each other. I don't know if you guys see those little lizards that do the push-ups on the block walls that do the thing. Uh, which, by the way, those lizards actually have these really beautiful blue stripes down them. I didn't know that until my two-year-old had one, you know, and... Oh, there's blue underneath there. I've, never, I've only seen them blend in. But, you know, Jay's a little hunter-gatherer in the backyard looking for the lizards. Got a ball. He's going to throw at them or go get them. And, and there's times when, like, I'll see the lizard. I was like, Jay, do you see that lizard right there? And I can tell he's, like, eyes are darting around. And he's like, yeah. He didn't see it, you know, but he's just like, yeah. And then, like, it's like one, two, three blocks over, one, two, three blocks up. And he's like, Yeah. And then all of a sudden he goes, I see it! And he, in the same time, like, gets catapulted forward in a full sprint to try to grab the lizard, and he doesn't get any throw stuff at it. But I see it! And it, like, this gravitational pull, like this yank is almost, like, propelling him forward to go in and see it. And this is, like, the phenomenon. Like, when you are looking for something, you're looking for something, and then finally you see it. It, like, arrests you. It takes hold of you. Like you were blind and all of a sudden you see. Like, the, like the, think about the emotional experience of doing those Where's Waldo books and you're looking at the page, looking at the page, looking at the page. And when you see it, it's obvious. It's right there. I see it. You know, and the, but you don't want to ruin it for everybody else you're playing with. But this is like the, when you really see what you've really been looking for, it grabs you. It's not like a, yeah, I see it. But when you've been searching and not finding, and then you search and you find, you get what happens to Mary. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went out and announced, I have seen the Lord. She's been looking. Where's the body? Where's, the, where's Jesus? Where's the Messiah? Where's the one? I see him. This announcement of the gospel is like the first preaching of the gospel. I've seen the risen Lord. He's not in the tomb. 
Because the tomb is empty is not the gospel. Because grave robbers. <laughs> Christ is risen is the gospel. And that's what he's saying. I've seen him. So I think a lot of times as Christians, we are kind of like my two-year-old who like, do you see the lizard? Yeah. We don't really see him, but we feel like, well, we're all saying yeah, so. We're not really looking. We're not interested. And my wife doesn't get really excited when she sees a lizard because she's not looking. (laughs) But have you seen him? Ephesians 1 talks about the eyes of our hearts being opened. We behold him. The one I'm looking for. The final provision for my need. The end of my clamoring. The end of my self-righteousness. The hope for the future. The one who makes sense of my past. The one who's sovereign over world history. Do you see him? Because when we really see him, this pull to go is there. When I'm most seeing Christ as beautiful, when I'm most seeing Christ as risen, when I'm most seeing Christ as providence, I don't have to look in the mirror and say, this time have courage and tell the people Christ is risen. (laughs) I don't have to like drum up some form of motivation to go tell the world that Christ is risen. I don't have to fabricate energy and decide to like pretend that I care about, when I really am captivated by his beauty and the work that he's accomplished in the world, then it just, it comes out of me. Like we're evangelists by nature. That's part of being human. Like I, I joked about this at the nine o'clock, but I'm gonna say about now, some of you have had fussy colicky babies and you're already excited to tell me about your solutions. Here's what we did and it worked, you know. And I got, I got them last service, six, seven people, you know. And get, tell you what, I'm gonna try them because I don't care, you know. So <laughs> you try a new place, you gotta tell someone. You found a new thing that, makes your life, you got to tell someone. Like when you really experience the power and the presence and the beauty, we tell people about that. I think a, a lot of folks in this room growing up in the church or even just like recently kind of become lulled to like the church process. It's like, oh, it's Easter, time to like tell people. Like you're evangelizing broccoli or something. Not very tasty, but it's good for you. You should have it. Brush and, brush and floss too also, you know. But when we, really ex- when we personally experience things as good news, we are evangelists. We tell people the good news. And so if you find yourself pretty unmotivated or unexcited or like generally uninterested in, help, in telling other people about Jesus, I just, I just want to say like rather than kind of treating that like some external problem, like I need to just get motivated, I think you need to do a little Mary Magdalene saying like, what am I really wanting? What am I searching for? Because Jesus is not the answer to early retirement. Jesus is not the answer to painless life. Jesus is not the answer to well-behaved children. Jesus is not the answer to uh, living my best life now. Jesus is not the answer to most of the questions that our culture is telling us to ask all the time. But he's the only true answer to, am I valuable? Is my life worth living? Is there purpose beyond my day-to-day grind? If you're searching for the right thing, Jesus is the right answer.
I've seen the Lord. And he said these things to her. Verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Here are the disciples. Just a couple of days ago, they were ready to draw their swords and go get Rome. Just a couple of days ago, just a couple of weeks ago, they were participating in the mission of Jesus as he sent them out two by two to cast out demons. Just a couple of weeks ago, they're sitting at the feet of the Lord, the teacher, and here they are, huddled together behind the locked door, afraid of some politicians. While Mary's grieving, they're out sulking. Maybe we waste our last couple years. And Jesus comes and stands among them. Maybe they see him through the window, they unlock the door. Maybe he knocks on the door, they let him in. Maybe he teleports in there, we don't really know. But he comes and stands among them. Peace be with you. Let's, think, let's break down this moment. Okay, think about someone you have tension with. That maybe you hurt them. Like I could think of like a dozen people from my high school. Boys and girls, men and women now. That if I saw them at the grocery store, it'd be like, oh. And you'd kind of like hope they didn't see you. That's, that's again, that's the experience of shame. Oh no. That person remembers that thing. That person sees that thing. That, the, the awkward encounter, right? But I wanted to get into the shoes of these disciples here. They have spent days and days not grieving, not doing what Mary was doing. When Christ, their friend, their teacher, their mentor, when he was at his weakest, at his lowest, at his most vulnerable, they vanish. They bail on him. They're proving themselves to be bandwagon followers. When things were going good, we were all in. Things got bad, we were out. And now here are these disciples having eye contact with the risen Lord. Like, put yourself in that moment. You're sitting around, afraid of the Jews, and Jesus walks in, and he sees you. And he knows, and you know that he knows. Like, what is, how do you feel? Do you, you get hot? A feeling of exposure, of embarrassed? You want to withdraw? What's he going to do? What's he going to say? He sees you. You see him. Is there tension? Is it awkward? Do you want to run away and hide? It's like the teacher just walked back into the room after you were doing spit wands. Quick! You kind of expect a lecture at this point, right? Those of you who were lectured as a child, you know. Welcome back. I told you so. I'm back. Hope you're happy. <laughs> I'm back. Where you been? All right. You going to bail me again this time? You kind of expect this lecture, but that's not what happens. Jesus doesn't heap shame. He doesn't condemn. He doesn't 
give them a speech about do better next time. He doesn't give them, you know, three more tries before it's over. Here's what he says. He says, he sees them. He stood among them. And he says, peace with you. The word peace could be translated harmony. It's like when two notes go together well. You think about dissonance. It's that that tension when notes don't go together. Harmony is that resonance when notes do go together. That's peace. Jesus looks at them in this great moment of vulnerability and shame and says, we still go together. I still go with you. You still go with me. And then this moment, he turns his hands and he shows them his wounds. I just picture the silence in that room when there's this room full of disciples and Jesus is showing them his wounds and he's showing them his side. And imagine they're thinking about Isaiah 53, which says this. He was pierced for our transgressions. He's crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53. And there's a reason Jesus says peace with you. And then he shows them his hands and his side. The reason we have peace, the reason we have harmony, the reason I still go with you is because you're healed. Not because of your renewed good intentions. Not because you're going to do better next time. Not because next time will be different. Not because, you know what, never mind, not a big deal. But here's why. Here's why you're healed. There is no tension between us. There's no awkward silence. There's no prove it to me this time. There's no penance. There's no say 40 Hail Marys. By my wounds, you're healed. Look at my wounds. This is why I'm calling this gospel applied is because it's the presence of Christ helping us apply the blood of Jesus that actually heals our shame. See, on Good Friday it was purchased, but here they're receiving power because when we're walking in shame, ashamed of what we've done, embarrassed of what we've done, and we're not recognizing that we've been healed, we're not recognizing that our punishment has already been delivered, we're not recognizing that there's no longer tension between us and God, when we're not recognizing that God is present to us saying, I'm right here, you're healed, we have no power. We're just doing shame management and calling it Christianity. Dan Seigal, who's a child psychiatrist, psychologist, wrote this book called The Power of Showing Up, and he talks about how parents actually give security to their children. And by security, I mean the opposite of insecurity, like the sense of self, confidence, the ability to risk, the ability to, to be creative to, without feeling like I'm, I'm on trial here. And he talks about there's these three phases that actually lead to security. The first one is see. Every child is born asking, does anyone see me? Crying, does anyone hear me? Are my needs seen? Am someone present to me? Am I loved? That's the C question. Am I loved? Am I seen? Then after seen, there's the next one. Am I soothed? Is someone going to help me with my problems? Am I going to be pacified? Am I going to be fed? Am I going to be changed? Am I going to be held? And the next phase, that's, that actually leads to safety. Am I safe? Do I have to fend for myself? Which is like where most reactivity and defensiveness comes from, this belief that I have to defend myself. Or is someone else going to defend me? 
And if you have all these three things in a child, the child experiences them, and that produces security. The ability to take risks and to go out and do all these things. And here you see Christ doing all of these to his children, you and me, to us. He's saying, I see your shame. I see your rebellion. I see your cowardice. I see your, this, this sense of not just I do bad things or I just make mistakes, but our mistakes actually reveal who we are. When I talk to folks who are struggling with sin and making mistakes, I don't want to just leave it at that level, but it's like us struggling and making mistakes are actually revealing who we are. It's way harder to admit I'm not who I want to be than it is to admit I do some bad stuff sometimes. But the reality for all of us is we are not who we want to be. There's a gap between who we should be and who we want others to think we are and who we actually are. And Jesus is going, there's no gap for me. I'm not surprised. I read your mail. I see that. I see your clamoring. I see your tears. I see the way you've been hurt. I see the way you hurt others. And I'm here to soothe that. I'm here to heal that. I'm absorbing it into myself. I'm not inflicting it on you. I'm choosing it to be inflicted on me. And that means that if you're safe with God, then you're safe. There's nothing more to prove. There's no one to impress. God is already impressed because he's wiped you clean. And that helps me know that who I am is not at risk. Who I am is not on trial. I don't need to earn it. I don't need to prove it. I just need to receive it. And this is one of the things that blows my mind about this text. So he says, peace be with you. He shows them his hands. The disciples go from feeling defeated and shameful to all of a sudden, and they were glad, they rejoiced now when they saw the Lord. They weren't glad at first, but when they see his wounds, something about that makes them get glad because they go, that is him. He was pierced for my transgressions. I am healed by his wounds, and they get glad. And then he says again, peace with you. And then he gives them this dignity of participation, this dignity to participate. Right, think about being patronized, like when someone treats you like a child when you're not. Nobody likes that. I think a lot of times we think that God treats us like children when we're not. It's patronizing, like he's micromanaging our life. But here's what he tells them. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. He gives them responsibility, gives them dignity, gives them a job, gives them assignment. Says, you're a part of this. Make it happen. A couple chapters ago, he said, I'm sending you. They blow it big time. He shows them his wounds. He said, still sending you. I'm so committed to using you. I'm so committed to you being a part of what's going on here. This is not a one and done, you blow it and you're out. This is certainly not a three strikes, you're out situation. This is a by my wounds, you're healed situation. As you're sending, Father sent the Son, the Son is now sending us. And he breathes on them. It says, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the power. This is the keys to the vehicle. This is the gas in the tank. I think about the Holy Spirit like a balloon. You're the balloon, the Holy Spirit fills us up. If you believe Christ is Lord, you have the Holy Spirit. But a balloon can be full and more full and more full and more full. And he breathes on them to receive the Spirit, that they would receive more power to participate, more power to be sent, more power to be agents and signs of what he's doing. And so all of us are assembled as God's people and then we're sent out as missionaries. Sometimes we think missionaries are those people who are nuts or are trying to get away from something at home. <laughs> no. You are all our missionaries. Missionary means sent one. You're a sent person. 
that God has called you and he is sending you out as an agent of his kingdom to represent him to the world. You're an ambassador, an emissary, someone sent on behalf of the king to advocate for the king's ideals in the foreign place. That's all of us. That's dignity. That's empowering. That's when you have that security, you are then sent out. Do something with it. Risk. Be creative. Tell people. Let them know. Because when they reject you, guess what? You're still secure. You're still safe. I'm still here to soothe you. I still see you. Your identity is not at risk when you go out and tell people about Jesus. Your identity is not at risk when you love your neighbor. You're not trying to earn it or achieve it, and it's not on the line. And so we're able to freely participate in God's mission in the little things in our life. Go out and tell people that their sins can be forgiven. Because if you don't tell them, their sins are not going to be forgiven. <laughs> That's what's going on here in this text. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. You withhold forgiveness from any is withheld. See, the Roman Catholics read that verse and they get the doctrine of absolution, meaning you have to confess your sins to a priest and then your priest takes away your guilt by absolving you. That's not what's going on here. What's actually going on here is like, I'm sending you out on mission. If you don't tell people about the forgiveness of sins and death of, in, the, in the death and resurrection of Jesus, then they won't know about the forgiveness of sins and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Your participation matters. There's something on the line. The question I have, and I want us to sit with as Redemption Gateway, is that heart question of have I given my shame to Christ? Have I come to him knowing he reads my mail, knowing that the gap between who others think I am and who I am does not exist for him, knowing that there's, I can try to hide things from him, but that's just stupid because I can't hide anything from him, knowing that he sees and understands my past, present, future failures, do I come to him and say, I trust in your ruins for healing? Or am I doing this kind of Christian guilt management? Sure, I'll invite someone to Easter so that way I can say I did the right thing. Because I know that when I really see him, when I really trust him with my shortfallings, when I really savor the presence I have with him, when I really want him like Mary Magdalene wants him, then being sent out on mission is not a chore. I don't have to give myself a speech in the morning in the mirror. Say, this time, tell people about Jesus, you coward. But when I'm grasped by his beauty, when I receive the, the healing he's given me, and when I'm walking out trusting the power of the Spirit to actually take me places I wouldn't go on my own and say things I wouldn't say on my own and to build bridges that I wouldn't build on my own and to love people the way I wouldn't love them. See, these, what qualifies these people is not the fact that they'd read a bunch of books on apologetics and are ready to tear down lofty arguments. What qualifies these disciples is not their moral intuition or their moral nobility. What qualifies these people is not their self-assurance but their God-assurance. What qualifies these people is not that they spent three years with Jesus but that right now they're seeing Jesus and the Spirit is sending them out. What qualifies these people is not time spent. You don't gotta put in your dues. What qualifies these disciples are the wounds of Jesus and the power of the Spirit, period, the end, and you have the same empowerment. You don't have anything, or they don't have anything that you don't have. I don't have anything they didn't have. And that gives me the freedom to just walk as the Spirit's calling me to walk, knowing that he's secured me, and now he's sending me. You want to talk about insecurity and purposelessness? 
You've got to get in on this. <laughs> These are the solutions that the world is looking for. And we have the answers to them. You want security and meaning? I got it for you. It's in Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that that would actually be true, that we'd believe that, that your wounds would heal us, that we can rest knowing it's finished. Father, I pray that you will uh, do a work on our shame, on the ways that we hide. It's like these disciples hid behind locked doors. God, we hide all the time. God, help us see your hands, see your feet, see your side. And I pray that we hear your your voice saying peace with you, knowing that you choose to identify with us even when you don't have to. Amen.